Judges chapter 12. This is part 19 of our journey through the book of the Judges. This has been a while, a hot minute, seven weeks, I think, since we were last in Judges. And we are picking up today in chapter 12. It is the end of Jephthah's life. And Jephthah is typically remembered as the guy who made the vow. But there's a lot more to him as just the guy that made the vow. Jephthah was born into a really difficult family situation. His mother was a prostitute, chapter 11 tells us that, and his brothers did not like that. In fact, they wanted to cut him off totally because his mom was a prostitute, and they viewed him as a social outcast, and they were not going to share their inheritance with him whatsoever. But not only did they want to cut him off, they also wanted to cut him off completely, not just financially, but socially. And so, literally, I mean, he's sent to the island of misfit toys, basically. He has to leave his hometown. He's not welcome there. And so Jephthah leaves, and he goes and makes a name for himself as a military warrior, and surrounds himself with those types of people, military warrior-like individuals, raiders, bandits, maybe not the guys you want marrying your little sister, but that's the type of company that Jephthah has, and he's done okay. Well, meanwhile, back in his hometown, in Gilead, the pressure of the neighboring Ammonites warring against them has raised the alarms to such an extent that they have their backs up against the wall and they need help. They need, unfortunately for them, they need someone like Jephthah to come and bail them out. And so they go to Jephthah. You can imagine the embarrassment, having to crawl back to this guy that was not good enough to even live in your neighborhood, and they've got to ask him for a favor. And they go and they say, Jephthah, can you please bail us out? We need someone that has your skill set. And so Jephthah, realizing the opportunity, negotiates. He says, I'll help you out. We'll deal with this Ammonite threat. But I want to be the leader. I want to be the president. I want to be the man. The big cheese. They go back and forth. They finally, people of Gilead, they have no other choice. They have to bend to Jephthah's will and desire. And so Jephthah has the deal in place, but he still has to win the military victory. It's not a given. He's going to do this. And so in preparation for this big military engagement that he's going to have with the Ammonites, he makes his vow. Lord, if you give me victory... When we get back into town, the very first thing that comes out of my house, I'll offer as a burnt offering to you. And so when we think of Jephthah's life, and I said this seven weeks ago, we normally think, he's the guy that spoke before he thought, right? He's the guy who made the rash vow. And so the moral of Jephthah's life is, think before you speak and don't make rash vows. That's really, while true, not the main point of the story. In fact, as I argued seven weeks ago, I don't think it was a rash vow at all. I think Jephthah knew exactly what he was going to do. He thought about this carefully, strategically. He knew, I think, that there was a possibility that a family member, a child, could be the first one out of his house. That that was within the realm of possibility. I think he knew that. And, of course, he does this because he's not going to leave anything up to chance. He really wants to defeat the Ammonites because he really wants to have his Count of Monte Cristo-like moment, full circle, rags to riches. He doesn't want to blow this. He's leaving nothing up to chance, and so he makes this vow with God, almost in type of this type of knock on wood, rub my lucky rabbit's foot sort of thing. He wants to make sure there's no possible way within everything within his power to win this. 
And of course, they win, and his daughter's the first one to come out, right? His only child, daughter comes out. And part of the reason that I argue that I think he knew exactly what he was doing is to understand what was life like during that time. Well, these were the dark days of the judges. And when we do a flashback, when we rewind and we think, we pause and we think, all right, Jephthah just won this battle. Why was Jephthah fighting in the first place? Well, Jephthah was fighting in the first place because the people of Gilead needed someone like Jephthah that had his resume. Why'd they need someone like him in the first place? Because the Ammonites were attacking them. Why were the Ammonites attacking them? Because God had given them into the hands of their enemies. Why? Because Israel had turned their back on God. Israel turned their back on God. They started worshiping all these other false gods. That's, that's why. And part of the practice of worshiping these other false gods included child sacrifice. And so very much the culture of the day normalized this type of practice, this type of thing. So I think it was a culturally acceptable thing for Jephthah to do, to make this vow. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. But of course, this is the whole reason why Moses, years and years earlier, said, when you get into the promised land, drive out all the inhabitants from the land. Because his concern was that if they did not do that, the other nations around them would pull them away from God, introduce them to other foreign gods. And of course, Moses was right. That's exactly what's happened. And so the other nations have said, listen, you can worship Yahweh and Chemosh. You can worship Yahweh and Moloch. And it's not really child sacrifice as long as it has some type of religious texture to it, right? It's not really murder as long as we just label it like a woman's right to have reproductive health options. It's, it's not really against God as long as love is involved. It doesn't matter how many LGBTQIA letters we add to it, right? That's okay, and you see that, right? That's why I say 2019 is not a whole lot different than the time in the judges. In the judges, they're like, listen, you guys can worship Yahweh, that's cool, and you can worship the other gods. And that's, that's why they're in the position they're in the first place. These other nations slowly chip away at their beliefs of what they know is right and wrong, and they've slowly turned their back on God and become like the people around them, to the point, to the extent that you probably wouldn't know whether or not they were Israelites, the covenant people of God, or the Canaanites. Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for a lot of people who call themselves Christians today. Sometimes you meet somebody and they say, I'm a Christian. You're like, what, you're a Christian? I would have had no idea because how you talk and how you live, it's very contrary to what the Bible says. But that's the day and age in which they live. And so, no, I don't think Jephthah makes this vow rash without thinking. I think he knows. I think it's just become such a dark period, a dark time that he's just gone along with it. And he knows full well that, yeah, it might be a family member that comes out that I end up offering as a burnt offering. But... Needless to say, Jephthah wins the battle. He gets to be the big cheese, the big man. They defeat the Ammonites. He's now the ruler, the king, essentially, of Gilead. And, and do we have a map for a second, JJ? I, I just want to, when I say Gilead, here, perfect. All right, so Gilead is not a tribe. Rather, Gilead's a geographical region. And you can see Gilead... Gilead is right up here, okay? This is Gilead, this whole region right here. It'd be like saying, I'm from the tribe of the Blue Ridge Mountains. 
but that covers multiple states. So does Gilead. Gilead. Gilead goes across and covers different geographical tribes. It's included in that area. But you can see that northern Transjordanian area. Well, he has made himself ruler of this area. He is, through his military feats, now the head of the Transjordanian highlands. But not all Israel is okay with this. Not all Israel has accepted his leadership. And that is where we pick up today in chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites? Did not call us to go with you. We will burn your house over you with fire. So not everybody is cool with Jephthah being in charge. The Ephraimites are upset. The Ephraimites are upset because he didn't call. If I could could use one word to kind of just capture the essence of verse 1, it's the word jealousy. It's jealousy. The Ephraimites, okay, this would be like North Carolina is to Virginia as Ephraim is to Gilead, right? They're mad. Why why are they mad? They're mad because they did not get an invite to join in the battle against the Ammonites. And so they're now being called to arms. And it's interesting because it says they've been called, but the narrator, he doesn't identify who called them. He said, okay, they got called to arms. Who called them? It doesn't say. Rather, he does this, I believe, intentionally to show the general disposition expressed by the tribe as a whole. In other words, this wasn't a few disgruntled Ephraimite leaders who were like, we're mad at Jephthah, call everybody to arms. Rather, this is how everybody in Ephraim felt for the most part. And they've been called to arms. Wait, wait, why? Because you didn't call. You, you did not call us to go with you, so we're going to burn your house down. I mean, I'm, I'm like overreaction much. You, you didn't call, right? You, you didn't text back, we're going to burn your house down. I mean, I, like, I'm thinking, like, how does this make any sense? But then again, when we're caught up in sin, sin doesn't always make a lot of sense when you're thinking clearly. And so they, they're upset. They didn't get the call. It's not the first time they've acted this way. In fact, when you go back to chapter 8, When we were in the life of Gideon, remember Gideon, the guy who has the fleece, throws the fleece on the ground, he's trying to discern God's will, at least that's kind of how we remember him today. Of course, it wasn't really the story, not about discerning God's will. He already knew God's will multiple times. He was just acting in fear. He was afraid. He wasn't confident. Not until he actually saw the army of a hundred plus thousand Midianites fleeing after he and his 300 buddies were making a bunch of noise in the middle of the night. And they went, just as God told him that he would give them victory. Well, at that point, he goes from being a pansy to actually being kind of a leader. But notice, and I'm going to read this. I don't have a slide for this, but here's what the Ephraimites say. Now, that was another time with Gideon, fighting other people. Notice their almost word-for-word response. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, being Gideon, What is this you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against the Midianites? Chapter 8, 1. And they accused him fiercely. Not the first time the Ephraimites have responded like this. They're jealous. They're jealous. You didn't call. And we were entitled to a phone call. They're jealousy. They've got this 
resentment, this bitterness, this wounded sense of self-importance, so much so, like they're totally determined to destroy the one who delivered them. Jephthah. Well, Jephthah tries to de-escalate the situation. He tries to talk to them, try to help them understand the situation. So he says, verse 2, and Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Guys, you're mad at me? You want to burn my house down because I didn't call? I, I did call. That's what he says. I, I call. So I don't, I don't know what happened here. You can see here, too, that this is a personal matter. Going back to my introductory comments, Jephthah had a ton riding on this battle. So much so that he was not leaving anything up to chance, which is why I think he was motivated to make the vow in the first place that potentially risked the lives of one of his family members. He's got everything riding on this. He doesn't deliver the Ammonites. He can go back to the hole he crawled out from. He's nothing. And so it's deeply personal to him. In fact, you see that expressed in verses 2 and 3 with all the, pers- the first personal pronouns. Notice what he says. Once again, think about how much this was. It was a big deal just for Jephthah, not just the people dealing with the threat. And Jephthah said to them, verse 2, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. Deeply personal for Jephthah. So he tries to de-escalate the situation with the people of Ephraim, explaining, listen, bottom line, I called, not my fault if you didn't get my message. Now the question is, is did he actually call, Right? Well, we don't know if he actually called or not. He says he did. He's said a lot of other things, too, in the previous chapter. But bottom line, we, we don't know. But he tells them that he did to try to de-escalate. He, he seems like where the Ephraimites are taking a step forward in hostility and aggression, Jephthah is at least, I think we can say, whether or not he actually called, he's at least trying to leave, Right? He's trying to just back away from the situation. Well, he only gets so far. Things are going to blow up real quick. Then Jephthah, verse 4, gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, this is what they're saying about Jephthah and his people, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And we think that escalated really quickly what just happened. And what just happened is answered in verse 4. They're in this dialogue. They're in this conversation. And the Ephraimites are like, you guys are a bunch of fugitives. You say, okay, what's the big deal about that? This is a huge deal. This is a very mean, vindictive thing for them to say. No doubt they knew Jephthah's history, just as you know Jephthah's history. His mom was a prostitute. His brothers despised him. They cut him off from the inheritance. They forced him to leave his homeland. He really was a fugitive. Ephraimites know this. The Ephraimites are really trying to get under his skin. They are looking for a fight. 
As Jephthah tries to de-escalate this and back away, they throw this up in his face. It's deeply personal, deeply derogatory. Okay? I mean, you think of whatever in your, in your mind, whatever it's like, man, that would be a very offensive thing to say. They just said it. They just went there. And at this point, the gloves are off, and they're going at it. People of Gilead and their neighbors in Ephraim, they're, they're going at it. Well, verse 5. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives, now these are real life fugitives now, when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, no, are you an Ephraimite? Of course they lied. And when he said no, they said, okay, well then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. But then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. 42,000 people just died. Uh, for what? Because people's feelings got hurt? 42,000 people are dead. Um, the battle ensues. Jephthah, we know he's a mighty warrior, no doubt picks the fords of the Jordan, a strategic waypoint where you would cross over the river. He, he secures that strategic waypoint, so it cuts off any type of supply route. They cannot resupply their men. They have no point of escape. And of course, when some of them make it through the lines, no doubt, they say, oh, I'm, I'm not an Ephraim. I just want to cross over. They get in to pronounce a word. All of us in here, we speak English. But some of us, depending on where we came from, if you're an Alaskan like me, or if you're from different parts geographically, the Great Lakes, the Northeast, the Southeast, uh, the Midwest, we pronounce words differently. And obviously, this is the situation there, and it is used to Jephthah and the Gileadites' advantage. He's a shrewd guy. It's a shrewd move to, one, figure this out, and two, just take the strategic waypoint at the fords of the Jordan. And he does that. 42,000 people are dead when it's all said and done. Verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. And then the narrator just continues. More on Jephthah in a moment. There's this awkward kind of transition to these three minor judges. Verse 8, After him... Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan. Now this should not be viewed negatively like outside like their religious group of Israel. Outside his clan would be like somebody from Lynchburg marrying somebody from Danville. I don't know. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel and he judged Israel ten years. And Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulon. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. And he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. This showcases, I think, certainly economic prosperity. And he judged Israel eight years. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. It seems this awkward transition, like, right, like, we've got this huge Jephthah narrative going on, and then he's like, oh, yeah, uh, then Jephthah died, and here's three other judges. Just, like, throws it in for good measure. 
And it, as kind of awkwardly as that reads, like even as I speak in the middle of this sermon, I think there are some significant reasons why he does this. And that's what I want to just point you to and comment on. The significance of the short list of these, we call them secondary judges or deliverers, I think is twofold. One, it provides to us the understanding that the story, the dark days of the judges, they're not an exhaustive account of all the different political realities that took place during what we'd call the settlement period. And two, it reminds the reader that the periods of oppression Israel constantly finds themselves in, being oppressed, then God raising up a deliverer, like Gideon or Jephthah, fighting their way through the battle lines, the enemy retreats, and then, then they're good for a while, then they get back into sin, and then it happens again. It reminds the reader that these periods of oppression were interspersed with periods of economic prosperity. We think of the judges and we think, oh, these are the dark days of the judges. The judges are a bunch of really negative Bible examples for us. And while I think that's certainly true, there, there are glimpses of light shining through the darkness. And that's important. That's important because it serves as a reminder that even amongst those storm clouds, once in a while light would break through. It was a, it was a reminder of hope. It was a reminder of hope. And I think about the story that we just read about Jephthah and 42, can you imagine 42,000 of your, your people, okay? I mean, this is like a little civil war they got going on. 42,000 people are dead. You think, how pointless is that? You think you need some hope? shining through the darkness in those moments, I think this is a, a, a helpful reminder that the narrator inserts this account of these minor judges as abruptly as he does here. It's very timely. When you're in the middle of a storm, in this case, people are, are lying dead in the streets all over the place, I would think you need a little bit of hope and encouragement. Back to chapter 12, verse 7. Look what he says. Kind of a depressing, because it is kind of a depressing how this story ends. Jephthah judged Israel six years, chapter 12, verse 7. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the city of Gilead. The story just ends. Not a very good ending. Like there's, there's no mention of the Ammonite threat being eliminated. No mention of the land being secured and having peace. No mention now that the people are faithfully walking with God. Rather, the story ends with the covenant people of God fighting each other. Israel's fighting each other. There's 42,000 not Ammonites lying dead. There's 42,000 really of their brothers lying dead. They've just killed each other. They've, they've literally become their own worst enemy. What for? Jephthah, I'm mad. You went to war and you didn't call. You gotta be kidding me. I said, what for? 
think the answer is for jealousy's sake. Their wounded sense of self-importance. The Ephraimites are totally determined to destroy their deliverer. I mean, it just boggles my mind. Uh, Last month, we celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day, June 6th, 1944, Operation Overlord, where Canadian, British, American Joint Operation Forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. It was huge. Eisenhower wrote how the eyes of the world are upon you. He actually had a letter, one prepared if victory occurred, one prepared if they lost. He was not sure. This was no guarantee. This was a strategic roll of the dice from everything. Would would the enemy, would the Nazis know that they were going to come and land here and be able to reinforce this area? Would the weather cooperate? He didn't know. So he had two letters prepared. And you think about the stress. You think about this just those words, those iconic, memorable words. The eyes of the world are upon you. And some of you have seen the scenes from the different movies. I'm thinking like Saving Private Ryan. And they, they're there and they're getting mowed down on the beaches. And I think about how they don't take Normandy. I think it's fair to say that we all in here might have not the opportunity, but rather no choice in the matter. We're all going to be bilingual. It's fair to say. They don't take Normandy that day. All of us are bilingual. We get to speak English and German. We get to have a different flag flying outside. I think it's the reality. Like it, when, you, when you look at history, so much of it hinged upon that one day. June 6th, 1944. That does not go the way of the Americans. Quite possibly, they're not back-to-back World War champions. You see how much is riding on that. And then you think how absurd it would be if someone said, General Eisenhower, you didn't tell me you were going to invade the beaches at Normandy, and I'm mad, and I'm going to burn your house down. Like, the fate of the free world hung in the balance. You'd say, that would be absurd. If if you hear anyone say that, I'll just slap them in the face for you. Like, no one would say that. No one would would be mad, right? Right? at their deliverers delivering them. And yet, the Ephraimites, well, they just got to be that guy. We're mad, Jephthah. You didn't invite us. Now, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. So, so you're mad that I led an army and saved you from this Ammonite threat because you didn't get the invite. Now, obviously, we know they have a history of doing this because I did this back in chapter 8, verse 1. With Gideon. And you see how destructive jealousy is. There's 42,000 Ephraimites laying dead. What for? What for? They're so pointless, it seems. And that's, you see, that's so stupid. Well, sin is stupid. That's what jealousy does. They are so jealous, so upset, they've got this sense of 
pride, the sense of self-importance. How dare he not call? How dare we not get a personal delegation from the man Jephthah inviting us to come there? It, it makes me think of another Bible story that runs kind of parallel to this one where people are also jealous, where they also have a, a sense of self-importance to the extreme that they devise a plan to take out their deliverer. His name was Jesus. Not the first time, last time, something like that will happen. Like Jesus, guys, he died on the cross, not just to make salvation possible. Jesus died on the cross so that we can kill and put to death this sort of sin. How, how big of a deal is jealousy? You step back and you count the 42,000 dead Israelites on the ground and you say, yeah, that, that's kind of a, a big deal. Jesus died on the cross to crush this sort of sin. Jesus died on the cross to deal with this sort of pride. Jesus died on the cross to cut down this sort of self-importance that infects our lives. It tells us that we're much more important than in reality we actually are. We're really not that important. Jesus is important. We're not that important. That type of pride that says that, right? The pride that seeps into our life and allows us to just get our feelings hurt about anything. I mean, someone sneezes the wrong way, someone's feelings are hurt. And then it doesn't matter. It's kind of like, well, I'm going to burn this house down. Literally, that's what the Ephraimite said. And it happens today within the covenant people of God. People that are supposed to be the church, right? The spiritual family. They get their feelings hurt. They're like, peace. Right? I'm just leaving and I'm going to try to burn this house down on my way out. Doesn't matter who it's going to hurt. Even people I cared about or once cared about, I don't care. Because I'm upset. Because I'm so-and-so. Like, I'm Joe Decreon. And you, you offended me. Yeah, this... This sort of sin attacks the church today. And it's maybe not the end of the story that we would have liked, that we would have hoped for, yet it's an end that we're really, really familiar with in which jealousy and this wounded sense of self-importance causes these same type of clashes among the covenant people of God today. Some of you have witnessed this. Some of you have seen this happen within your local church. You've seen it on social media. I, mean, I saw it last month. The president goes. David Platt's church in Northern Virginia. David Platt prays for him, just as we pray for the president every Sunday, just as I prayed for President Obama every single Sunday. Not a political thing, rather a biblical thing, a First Timothy 2 thing. We should pray for our leaders. And then David Platt gets ripped up by one unnamed evangelical leader. Because David Platt wrote an open letter to his church saying, listen, I know some of you guys may not have liked the fact that I prayed, but I prayed because it's biblical and we should, regardless who's in office. And he just got such terrible things said. Things I can't even repeat, like in here. And I can be kind of edgy sometimes. I can't even say it. It was just so nasty. And the terrible thing was, this was like, literally like, the people criticizing him weren't criticizing him because he prayed for the president. They were just criticizing him because they didn't like that he had to even give a reason for why he prayed for the president. They're just mean, and they said horrendous things about him. And you see this, like, we have 42,000 Ephraimites dead in the streets. Why? Because someone's feelings got hurt. Because they didn't get an invite. I think the beauty of the story 
is understanding who the real hero is. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11, in the great hall of faith, you see something that, honestly, I totally forgot about until I was preparing for this sermon. But I figured since this was the last week of Jephthah's life, it's a good time to remember it. And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. I've been really hard on Jephthah throughout uh, my last few sermons because Jephthah throughout his life, half the time he kind of acts like a follower of God and half the time he acts like a pagan Canaanite. And it's gotten to the point where I'm like, I don't really know whether he, whether he really loves God, if he's like a cultural, what we'd call a Christian, I don't know. And what's amazing is, is we come to Hebrews 11, we're like, how did he get his name on that list? Like, I, I, I'm shocked his name's on the list. How is that possible, Jesus? How does a man like him get his name on that list of these great Bible characters, Jesus? Who, by the way, is the real hero of this story? It blows my mind when I think about, like, the same mercy and grace that's given to Jephthah's given to us. And uh, Joe, Joe Decrian needs that every day. Uh, Jephthah does not make it on this list of the Hall of Faith characters because he's some Christian of the year. Quite the opposite. I mean, he's not by any means. But that is the brilliance, the beauty of the grace of God who's the real hero at the end of the story. See, that's what the cross does. The cross of Jesus Christ leads us to a life of love. It doesn't lead us to this sort of jealousy that results in the loss of so many lives. It does the opposite. Like, when Jesus died on the cross, he did so to enable us to put to death the sin of pride, of this high-handed sense of self-importance that says, my feelings are all that matters. I'm mad. I don't care if it hurts, literally kills 42,000 people. My feelings are all that matters. When Jesus died on the cross, he put to death that sort of sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he enabled us to consider others before our own, including our own feelings, when our self-importance is wounded, and it can get wounded sometimes. See, what Jesus did on the cross leads us not to a life of pride like the Ephraimites, but a life of Humility that understands how in the world does Jephthah make it into the hall of faith? The mercy of God. That's it. His mercy. The same mercy that extends to all of us in which we would never be good enough to stand totally justified before God in the next life for our sins in this life is a, if it wasn't for that same mercy that's extended to each and every one of us, that same grace that's extended to every one of us. And I'm going to say that's kind of good news here, not just in the dark days of the judges, that's kind of good news in 2000 and 
19. Which sometimes feels like we're living in the dark days of the judges. To be reminded the true hero of this story is not Jephthah. The true hero of this story is the one who lived the life we could not live. The true hero of this story is the one who died the death we should have died. The true hero of this story is the one who paid the price we could not afford to pay. How does Jephthah make it on that list? Jesus, by his mercy and his grace, that same mercy, that same grace that is available to us. 